Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions, so for coverage of the game and everything that happened in Miami, check out the Ringer NFL show for their game recap. And on the site, you can read Danny Heifetz on Andy Reid, Roger Sherman on Patrick Mahomes, and Robert Mays on Kyle Shanahan's Super Bowl Deja Vu. On the Ringer's YouTube channel, make sure to check out Slow News Day with Kevin Clark live from Miami with a bunch of special guests like Miles Teller and Glenn Powell. You can watch and subscribe at youtube.com slash the ringer. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's the showrunner for Briar Patch and so much more. It's Andy Greenwald. Oh, you went mellow. My voice is shot, dog. This is the end of a day. We usually record bright and early. Yeah, so we're recording this part of the podcast on uh, Tuesday? It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Wednesday, uh, which is the day before Andy's show, Briar Patch, premieres. Mm-hmm. What an exciting time for everybody. Yeah, thanks, Especially man. you. Today's episode is pretty simple. Andy and I are going to have a spoilerific conversation mm-hmm. about the pilot, the first episode. Uh, that'll go for about 15, 20, however long, however long he can give me in his busy schedule. I got hours. Uh, and then the rest of the podcast is the recording of our live show that we did in Hollywood with Andy, Sam Esmail, Kim Dickens, Jay Ferguson, all about the first episode of Briar Patch and what it was like to work on the show. It's a little bit more of a general discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, cruise control comes up. So, you know. As does Kaya McMullen. As does Kaya McMullen. And um, she was shouted out from the stage by Sam Esmail, who then denigrated both of our taste. Mm-hmm. That was great. So it was basically, you're, you're all going to be very comfortable with the conversation yes, exactly. you'll hear later. So what Andy and I are going to do now is talk a little bit more granular, granularly yeah. about the, the first episode. What was going through your mind when you made the first I episode? Love it. <laughs> you know a question I haven't gotten a lot? I've been doing a lot of interviews. You know a question I haven't gotten? What perspective did you bring to it as a creator that you had as a critic? I bet everybody has asked you that. Everyone has asked yeah. me that. Um, wait, really? What was the question? Well, what is the question you haven't been asked about this yet? Mm, in what ways did my friendship with Chris Ryan sustain me, <laughs> inspire me, lift me up? <laughs> no, I mean, like, this is really exciting. We're going to—you guys are have hopefully seen the pilot now, which is insane to me. Yeah. And just a little bit of a TikTok here. And I think I talk about it a little bit from the stage. Sure. But uh, moved here to Los Angeles, California in August. Are you going to give people your biography now? No, I'm just saying, okay. you know, August of 2016. <laughs> uh, I was just a Jewish boy from Philadelphia. Was, <laughs> like so many others before me. No, I mean, I wrote this this script almost verbatim, like in three weeks that fall. And I, 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 just, I think you wrote some of it at F&B. The commissary here I at did. the Sunset Gower Studios when we record this podcast. I did. Yeah. Do you think there's a rights issue because of that? Like, you should they, ask the guy who makes you coffee. Do yeah. they claim it? And I, I just saw the draft. I, I sent it to my agents on October 7th, 2016, and Sam wanted to make it that month too. And now it's so many years later, and it's finally going to be on TV. It's surreal. I yeah. mean, we filmed this in the fall of, I don't remember what year, in the fall of 18. So the journey of it is just so wild. And like, it was such a secret for such a long time. And now we can talk about the fact that we had real zoo animals on our show <laughs> yeah. and that, you know, there's two car bombs and all sorts of stuff. Even people who read the book know how much we change things. So this is the trippiest part because it's just actually now going from something that, I mean, you saw a version of the pilot over a year ago. but Yeah, I saw, I saw like an early cut of it. I saw, and then of course, obviously, I've seen it a couple of times since then. The big thing I wanted to talk to you about mm-hmm. is that 
you have so much to do in the first episode. Um, oh, I thought you meant in general. You have to build the world. Yeah. So you have to show us what Saint Disgrace looks like. Mm -hmm. You have to introduce us to Pick. Mm -hmm. You have to Rosario Dawson's character. Mm -hmm. And you have to create all this like plot stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot. And then you also you want to like kind of like write your signature too. It's not just what you're writing, it's like what's your handwriting. Mm -hmm. And you want to tell people it's okay to laugh here. It's yeah. okay to be scared here. Mm -hmm. It's okay to flinch here. It's okay to wonder whether or not this guy or this woman is on the level. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about spinning all those plates because I think we can watch shows and we can be like, oh, you see how Outsider did that? That was very cool. Like, yeah. He added that line in here. But like, how, what was the process like working with Ana Lily Ampura on mm -hmm. the directing of it? And um, so, like a lot of really incredible people obviously behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But when you're like in the first episode, how much do you want to show mm -hmm. and how much do you want to tell? Yeah, I mean, there were certain things that I just felt made sense. So a lot of this has been about the education of me as a visual storyteller, which is very much a work in progress. And Lily gets, I mean, Sam gets a ton of credit because mm -hmm. Sam is obviously an incredibly gifted visual storyteller and pushed me and pushed everybody to go for it and go for it in big ways. A lot of the credit goes to Lily. Uh, there's an example in the pilot where, I mean, the first time you see Allegra Dill, she's getting off this plane and she looks fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's this huge cinematic shot. In the pilot that I wrote in 2016, we never saw her get off a plane. We see her, well, first we see her in her DC apartment, much like we do in the book, getting yeah, a right. phone call from Strucker. We filmed that and we cut it. It didn't work. And so the first time you see her in San Bonifacio is in front of like some shoddy terminal building and she has an interaction with the Skycap. Mm -hmm. And she was like, why would you show an ugly building? we're making a movie here, you know, like we're going big. And so she made our locations person scout out this small airfield outside of town and, and created that shot out of whole cloth, which is like the signature. Where'd you get the plane? Introduction. Uh, that was Sam's. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, it wasn't. Uh, it was Emmy's. And similarly, like what Allegra, I had a really strong feeling about who she was and what she felt like, yeah. you know, on the page, but I didn't describe what she was wearing. You know, I, I really wasn't sure what someone in her position would look like because does she just wear, like, business cash? Like, what is that, right. you know? And it was Lily who said Bianca Jagger and sent me a bunch of photos of Bianca Jagger at Studio 54. And and this is pre-AOC, like, with the pantsuits, you know? And just they're so riveting and so iconic, I think, and made this— a person who wears that suit of armor to this place tells you almost everything you need to know about her. Yeah, the, and, the clothes that Allegra wears mm -hmm. do a lot of the uh, filling in the blanks because her personality, especially in the first episode, yeah. is, like, so tight. And that she's was keeping it so bottled up. She, she's an iceberg character, and that was why getting someone like Rosaria was so important because you have to be able to watch someone— you can't take your eyes off her even though you have to assume there's much more under the surface. What's an iceberg character for, for folks that don't know? I just made it up. Oh, cool. I mean— <laughs> Wait, you, did you, seen... you talk about this on stage? Maybe. Okay. Did this, I ask you what an iceberg character is? This is probably going to be super boring because I'm just going to, we're so tired, we're saying the same things. No, you no, said no. The other night. I mean, this is like, this is good but, because I think that in the book, mm -hmm. the Ben Dill. Ben Dill is the same way. He is more like the continental op in Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. It's like and, the nameless investigator who's kind of drifting through this mm -hmm. rogues gallery. Yeah. And that was the thing that sort of really helped break my mind open as to what this was versus the book, which was when I was writing those first few pages and those scenes in the DC apartment that we later cut. I was like, why is she so unemotional? And then I was like, wait, Ben Dill is unemotional. Why don't I question him? Mm. So that really gave me perspective on my own biases in writing a woman in this, in this role. But there were other details too. You were talking about painting like a visual picture, like the cigarette 
business mm-hmm. um, that's in the pilot was something I added because I just thought it would be visually interesting because we expect someone to do something and they don't. And also this element of control, tell us something about her in that regard. And and then the zoo animals, which was, you know, everyone knows my long history of loving animals on television shows. But that was just the kind of thing that like the experience of writing it, yes, at F&B, apparently no free ads, but <laughs> you're getting a cut of that one mm-hmm. or whatever latte I do order. You, you think I have points on F&B? Apparently. Yeah. Um, that uh, I was writing it. I was writing that taxi scene where she's arriving in town. I wrote the thing linearly. I didn't like outline it and, and write it out of order. It just felt like there was a dead kangaroo in the street. It just felt like that would be the kind of absurdity that she would be coming back to and everyone else is taking it seriously. So I guess she sort of has to adjust to it too. And obviously there's whatever metaphor you want about the, the feral nature of the town. But hopefully we have something to say about that that's more interesting than just that one facile analogy. What, what was the hardest part to shoot in the pilot? What was the hardest scene to shoot? Um, it's a good question. Not even like technically, but I think even like, I'd be curious to know like intellectually, because one of the things that was fascinating Mm -hmm. about watching you go through this process is the um, amount of time that gets spent being like, even like, even what you said about with Lily being like, I don't want to see a boring building. I Mm -hmm. want to see this cool plane. Like, you know, I can feel, I know that you guys had conversations about like, if this person is here, how Mm -hmm. do they get over here? Like really practical Mm -hmm. questions about space and time and conversations the flow of information mm-hmm. was there a scene that you were like that was really secretly challenging um it's almost hard to answer it now because the experience of shooting nine more of them was so much more challenging mm-hmm. that in retrospect i mean a pilot's really hard because as you're saying you, you should have to, go do the one episode a year oh God. style who does that style <laughs> you want to name names sherlock i guess apparently yeah um because we in retrospect it was kind of luxurious we had to build the world but we also had 13 days to do this one episode of television where for every other episode we had eight days mm-hmm. and it's in one case seven days because we, we gave one day to another episode. So we were never on set on stage. We were always on location. So for me, like the, the day that we were at Felicity's appartment and we shot all of the stuff with Strucker, the great Chris Mulkey. With and, her going and through and being like, like looking in, through the cabinets and in stuff the like cabinets that. And yeah. then also the big scene out front um, where. Uh, That's my favorite scene. That, list, that speech she gives in the apartment or after after when she's when she's doing yeah. like this is like my sister left Did, piles didn't live yeah. here yeah. um and then into the car into the explosion like that was we were there till four in the morning and that was hard because i don't like being awake that long mm-hmm. i definitely like passed out on the cat we were staying I, we were shooting video village was in one of those unused apartments mm-hmm. in that complex and i definitely like passed out for a minute and then woke up and heard chris mulkey calling the town like san geronimo or something <laughs> i was like okay, <laughs> right okay we better <laughs> jump in here um, so that, I mean, so that was challenging, like being in that hotel, you know, for three days to shoot all this stuff, especially up in the hallway was challenging, but not same steak the every day. Uh, <laughs> no, that we had multiples. Okay. We did have multiples, the steak. Cause if you, it, I have a steak guy, if you ever, you got a steak guy in the Southwest. Yeah. <laughs> Phenomenal. We just use kangaroo meat. Oh God. Um, the, uh, I think in some ways the thing that I was most nervous about is at the end we had the giraffes there and we were at the Baines Mansion where Jake Spivey lives and that scene was the hardest thing because I knew that if we were going to pull this off a lot of things had to click and one is we had to find the right cast and mm-hmm. certainly we had to get the right person for Jake who we found in in Jay Ferguson but the second thing is you know this is rookie showrunner stuff like I wrote a pilot that builds to a 10 page scene mm-hmm. You're not allowed to have 10-page scenes. And they were all making fun of me. Like, even at the table read, like, the network people were like, good luck with that 10-page scene. 
it's coming down. The scene between the, the, Jake uh, and the Allegra. and Jake scene. Yeah. And so, you know, Lily was smartly, you know, gave us like almost almost two days to do one scene. And then they sat down in that hot room with the Tony, the sexy Tony Scott lighting, mm-hmm. as Lily said, and 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 they had it. So we did it, obviously, you know, dozens and dozens of times. And Is then the vape pen in the script? And no, no vape pen in the script. For people who know Jay Ferguson, or maybe you'll hear it in his voice on the podcast that you're going to hear soon, or the stuff from the stage, he is perpetually surrounded in a cloud of smoke like Pigpen from the Peanuts comic strips. And so he was vaping pretty hard, and, and Lily and I were both like, that looks really cool. You never see kind of a cowboy vaping. Mm-hmm. And so he was very comfortable with that with that particular prop. And also the other thing about that scene that I'll say is, obviously fake beer in the Dungy beer cans, but uh, Jay being a pro downed them every time and like went through Way a six pack. Yeah. Uh, Stella Adler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, Rosario was like, can you just fill this with tap water, please? <laughs> because this is, <laughs> this is a lot, but, but they did, they, they delivered. And so that was the thing I was really nervous about. They were incredible. And then when we got to the edit you know, we had to trim it and there were lines in there that I loved. And it actually got to the point where our friend Gina, who was a brilliant editor on the pilot and on a couple other episodes, was telling me like lovingly like we're gonna have to give a give a, give it a look we're gonna mm-hmm. have to bring it down, and uh, I had to leave the room like basically like my child was undergoing surgery right and I had to leave the room while Gina and Greg Tilson are post producer short, made your child shorter and they brilliantly did a version of the scene where they cut like five minutes out of it mm. and showed it to me first and it was awful so that when they showed me the version that cut like two minutes that's what, this is what Kai and I do with all your takes after I assume, you leave I don't on listen Mondays. I assume they're very short and anyway so that so that was the process of that scene the episode. You know, opens with a bomb and closes with a bomb mm-hmm. for the most part. And, and there's only one in the book. That's yeah. a change. Uh, good change. Mm-hmm. Thanks. A lot why, of bangs. I why why I, have bomb, one bomb when you can have two? But Lily loves blowing stuff up. The arc of the episode, I think, is to sort of defined by those two explosions. Yeah. Because, and I don't even mean narratively, I mean emotionally. Because when you first, um, you're going to have to help me out with character names. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you first see Felicity mm-hmm. and her death, mm-hmm. the response is, if you were conversant in crime fiction or a certain kind of crime fiction and and um Tim Sharp's character Harold Harold says honey like it, it appears someone just blew up the landlady yes and and it's kind of like played for this kind of almost not quite comic relief but like it's maxi that's, like that's verbatim from the opening of the book right but the way that Allegra is kind of processing everything by the end of the episode feels mm-hmm. way more real and it I think it it takes you as a viewer on a real journey where you start out and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's all like like yeah. finger guns and we're, we're having a great time here in the Southwest. And by the end, you're like, oh, shit, like she is feeling this. I mean, that's the thing that was interesting to me is that like you and I love noir. We love the tropes of the genre. We love watching movies or shows or reading books where characters always know just what drink to order. They never appear to be drunk. They always know just what to say. They have the clever rejoinder. They can pick locks, blah, blah, blah. But those are suits of armor. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of 10 episodes is you can use those episodes to blow the armor off of people and show the humanity underneath them. And so that moment when Jake and Allegra see each other, neither of them had models growing up. They're both wearing like action figure versions of what they think successful people would wear. Um, But it was important to begin to show that Allegra is going to have whatever cool she's managed to acquire. Not just like you're, you're a cool person, but like literally like she keeps it cool blown off of her and we're going to she's going to have to deal with the stuff that that's that's underneath of it. And so the idea for me that was interesting was her sister's death not as an abstract but that she would come close to experiencing it herself. Yeah. She would feel the heat of the flames right. in the intensity of it. Made all the more poetic by the fact that she has this distance from her that yes. that 
that uh, Strucker is saying to her, like, did you even know her? It, like, when's the last time it, you saw her? You know, it's really tricky too because one of the rules we have for the season, if not the series, is no re- no no flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I don't like flashbacks. I feel like they're usually kind of kind of a cheap or facile way to to sort of get people's emotions going or to sort of to 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 tell instead of show basically. And so th- one of the challenges and people can say if we did it or not is to make Felicity worth caring about, sure. you know, even though to, she's only with us for such a brief amount of time. Exactly. So to feel her worthiness as the spirit that kind of haunts the show and motivates Allegra's actions and 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 so the idea of ending this way was to see how rattled could she be? I mean, she spends 3 days in this land of wolves by all these creepy men talking wild shit at her. Yeah. But each um, each time she meets somebody new, they go through the same sort of um it's almost like she's like in a receiving line at a funeral the mm-hmm. entire episode. Which is episode four, by the way. Yeah. Sneak but like, preview. But like, uh, you know, everybody comes up, pay my respects. Here's how I felt about Felicity. And every time she's like processing it in a different way because she's not only hearing about somebody that she maybe doesn't know that well mm-hmm. in some ways, but she's also analyzing the person who's telling them that to be like, what What are you trying to get across to me by telling me this? People love to tell other people who they are mm-hmm. and how they are and then use other lives as sort of reflecting mirrors for their own and I feel like that's another thing that's interesting about when someone is removed from it when someone has died then their death has to have meaning for everybody else who's still alive and so sort of using or abusing that absence to suit your own ends that's a very that's kind of a very post-psychotherapy way of describing something that happens in a lot of Ross Thomas books you know <laughs> yeah. uh, and so hopefully in, in in so doing like that's that's the kind of updating I wanted to do yeah I mean I think that one of the things that you and I both love about him I think my favorite book by him is uh, The Fools in Town are on our side. His epic. Partially because it's his epic, but also because one of the cool things about Ross Thomas books is the thing that gets talked about is the thing that in most books would be the subtext. Mm -hmm. So in a book like The Fools in Town are on our side, it's explicitly about this group of characters who arrive in a small town and are like, we are here to corrupt this town. Mm -hmm. Now, most books would be about the subtle corruption that happens through like the machinations of Mm -hmm. different nefarious actors. They're like, no, this is who we are within this story. Mm-hmm. I thought that one of the cool things Briarpatch did is have characters who are aware of, not self-aware that they are in a crime story, mm-hmm. but are aware almost of the tropes of crime fiction. Yeah. Which obviously, in some ways, this whole thing is like a love letter by you mm-hmm. to the, the thing that has meant so much to you over the years. Tell me a little bit about working in that metafictional way. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more of it in... Uh, the pilot than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was because I was being sort of self-aware of what I was doing in a way that I think at a certain point I was just doing it. But that the stuff about Jake's lines, basically, like... Um, there's always a dead girl. There's always a dead girl. Yeah. And, you know, that's obviously... That's me talking after five years of being a TV critic. Sure. There, there is. And, Dear Russ Cole. But, but really, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they always follow a pattern, you know? And bad guys get away with stuff. And, you know, the haunted figure who becomes obsessed... Chasing something um, is almost as tragic as the person who died. And so I, I kind of wanted to state that, put down those fence stakes, because I, I think that's true mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, certainly in terms of how people process entertainment and people are used to those ideas. And then try to, try to chip, chip at it. I don't know. It was important to me, and this is something that you'll see as, as we move forward, that Obviously, this is as much about, I mean, this is nothing new. This is all detective stories. It's as much about the detective as the victim. And um, it was important to me to try to suggest that 
being the dogged investigator doing busy work and investigating might not actually be the clearest or healthiest way to get clarity on something. Yeah. And one of the things that that happens over the course of the season is, you know, Allegra is a little too hot. She's a little too involved. She's a little too emotional. And she's not always that good at her job. Mm-hmm. And a main character not always being good at their job is one of those very, very subtle things. It turns out it's a lot harder to do in practice. Yeah, than it's also, it can sometimes be the thing that enrages people while they're watching it. Because, exactly. like, I mean, even we were talking a little bit about Outsider. I think I've maybe more talked about this with Jason, but the idea that now the viewer is ahead of the investigators mm-hmm. on Outsider. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, Obviously, like the Allegra is the central character, and she is in almost every shot of this show. She's in every scene yeah. for the first. I think we break POV at the top of episode three for to the first time. My PV, POV. It's just Chris shaking his head, being like, "What if? What if it was cold out?" <laughs> um, but yeah, like the idea that you don't want to let the viewers start to second guess why they're invested in this person specifically mm-hmm. solving this. Yeah, and and the relationship to mysteries in general, I mean, people have heard me say this before, maybe even in context separate and apart from this TV show, but when you and I talk about the writers we love, whether it's Ross Thomas or um, certainly someone like James Crumley, who we talk about a lot as well, I don't always know what happened. Oh, fuck no. And I don't always really care. Now, that's not to say I didn't care about the mystery in the show because it's really important to me that people who tune into USA to watch a sexy mystery That's show. USA Network. USA Network, yeah. not this failing Channel 5. democracy yeah. <laughs> that we're in. Um, I want them to be satisfied. I want this to be a mystery show that people are engaged by. But I do think that you, while you, it's important to service that, you really, if, if at the end of whatever the last episode is, people are like, oh, that's why he or she did it. And that's the only question they wanted answered or they're, they're focused in on the minutia of how it happened, then I think you failed as a storyteller. Because I think the goal is to get people invested in the larger world and the larger questions that are interesting to the world and particularly to the emotional state of the people who are still alive. Yeah. So that is the trickiest. I mean, we're sort of, what we're talking about might sound kind of vague because you guys haven't seen the series yet, but this was the trickiest um, yeah, because you're dealing with like essentially like five or six like dense conversations that make up this episode. This episode is just people talking, yeah. which is the other thing that was. I mean, it, it didn't really it's follow. Like any, you got to get more fucking parkour in this show. Andy. I didn't read Bob McKee's books. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I kind of can't believe they let me get away with it because it's just a character moving like a knife through the world, talking to people, talking to weirdos, mm-hmm. one after the other. Uh, I mean, they have a cumulative effect on her, obviously. Um, since People have now seen the show. Can I can I just say the one last big thing that was, you know, we didn't, we, we got a real tiger, guys. That was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, well, you can listen to our live show that's coming up. Uh, there is a little bit more of a general discussion, but we do get into the real tiger that mm-hmm. is in this show. Mm-hmm. Um, a tiger that Eddie has a deep connection with. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil anything from that conversation. Are there any other, like, I'm trying to think if there's any other minutia that I can point out to people in this pilot, um, couple well, like what other things Anything are there? To like, look would for? you would you give a tip of like keep an eye on this without giving tipping your hand too much? Well, every character that's in it is there for a reason, and I love them all. I think they're phenomenal. When we were in edit forever, the fact that Singe drinks a giant glass of, of milk, oh yeah, is really funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> every time, I would say uh, before you ask, yes, the hotel clerk 
uh, Chip is an homage to Barton Fink. Yes. Uh, I don't think anybody was questioning that. That was that was pretty clear. You know, I just just I, I, the thing that was fun for me was falling in love with all these char- characters and all these actors, and then getting to tell them whether it was whether it was uh, getting to tell them that that if things worked out, we'd get to see them again. Yeah, we'd come back and play. And I don't can't tell you how rare it is because we only had four cast members under contract for the series. We only had Rosario, Eddie, Brian, and and Jay. Mm-hmm. So when I'm saying to Charles Parnell, who's totally in demand and went off to film Top Gun 2 in between the pilot and the series, yeah. or David Zaldivar, or or um, Tim Sharp, um, we'll, we'll run this back. It's too bad that you guys couldn't keep Florence Pugh. And get uh, it. You know, and that was a recast she situation. She was supposed to be the, the waitress in the bar that she, serves <laughs> God, she would have been good. Yeah. Um, but I would just, you know, keep an eye out for Allegra Edwards, who is plays Cindy and is in the background in the apartment a lot. And... You know, it's just the kind of thing that makes this job really fun, which is she is a brilliant actor, and she auditioned with a scene that I wrote for a potential episode two before we even shot the pilot, and then ad-libbed that entire scene with the great Chris Mulkey. Mm. Uh, all that business between the two of them was ad-libbed. That's great. All the stuff with the guitar and the git fiddle and the, like, can you sing You Are My Sunshine? And she's like, you're the sister. All ad-libbed. And she's so great and funny. And I always knew that the character was going to come back a little bit. And by the end of it, she was in nine out of the ten episodes. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, man. I, I think know. one thing that would be cool, Andy and I are going to try, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about every episode in some capacity. I think it would be cool not to turn everyone in these into a mailbag, but I'd be very curious to know what other people want to know about yeah, this. I would love to answer um, questions. One of the things is that I think that it's going to be tough because, like, it is a mystery, so we don't want to give anything away. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we we would love to talk as much as possible about this show because, obviously, it's pretty rare that the person who wrote and created a television show also has to come in and talk to me twice a week. Except for, didn't they do that on Chernobyl? Oh, yeah. And Watchmen? That's true. But it's like... It's like, like Craig like, Mazin, but, like, I've known you for even longer. Then you've known Craig? Yeah, which I... <laughs> you, you and Craig go... go uh, Whitewater rafting. That's true. Every so often. That's true. We should just talk about Iger Counter. <laughs> Kaya, cue the whitewater rafting music. <laughs> All right, coming up next is the live show that we did in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago. We hope you guys love Briar Patch, and we will be back on Monday to talk about non-Briar Patch stuff for the most part. Yeah. And then uh, what we're going to do is release these episodes on Thursdays right after the East Coast airing of Briar Patch. So if you guys are watching along, which you should be. You'll be able to get like an inside kind of DVD director's commentary right after it. And guess what else I can say right now? If you like the first episode of Briar Patch, the second episode should be available on demand right now. Are you serious? A week early. Did you tell me that? No. Is this your breaking news? I'm breaking news on Mike. Are you allowed to do that? I don't know. Let's see. I'm off the chain now. <laughs> off the tiger leash. Greenwald, good luck, man. Love you, Brancies. Hope you like the show. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Real Real. Own iconic luxury items at unreal value with The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment from top designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. Shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion and streetwear, as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home. New arrivals come in daily, and every item undergoes The Real Real's meticulous authentication process. In fact, The Real Real employs over 100 plus brand specialists, gemologists, horologists, and art curators from around the globe who inspect thousands of items each day to ensure that every item is authenticated. Shop luxury the sustainable way. Go online, download the app, or visit one of their stores in Soho, West Hollywood, or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. Consigners, 
try out the Real Reels white glove service for free in home pickup today. Shop in store, online, or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL for 20% off select items. Hello. Thank you guys for watching the first episode of Briar Patch, and thank you for coming out to this live taping of a very, very, very special episode of The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on stage, the creator of Briar Patch, it's Andy Greenwald! Thanks, buddy. Thanks, everybody. You know, during the screening, I found... Um, you gotta sit down. I, I, I can't do Spalding I, Gray I, on me. I got it. <laughs> Uh, I discovered in my uh, jacket that was so lovingly provided by Risa Garcia, who did the beautiful costumes tonight, who is here tonight, a pin left over from when it was fit. And I thought that was perfect because, and very briar patch, because I could just slowly, slowly just push the pin into myself <laughs> to make sure that I was so alive. You're feeling great. There's no nerves. I feel great. Um, Andy, uh, did you guys like it? <sighs> Thanks. These are. Every single one of these people are one Metacritic. That's fantastic. So that's- I'd like to give a special thanks to the Nielsen family for coming tonight. Um, Appreciate all you do. By the way, while we have you guys, your attention, just for the people in this audience, obviously there's a lot of really cool stuff in this room. So feel free to take pictures and really enjoy the space, right? I mean, not while we're recording. But no, yeah. I mean, no. <laughs> feel the space. Yeah, but you know, feel free to wander around. I've never sat this close to you during And if you're going to put anything online, it's hashtag... Briar Patch, or hashtag release the Snyder Cut, which is... No, it's a release the Ryan Cut. <laughs> um, Chris had notes. Andy, I wanted to... get to tonight. <laughs> um, can I also just say, and I will say it again at the end, but I just also especially want to thank everyone here from USA, from UCP, from Paramount, and for making this incredible evening happen. I mean, they branded the beer. That is probably the single most exciting thing about it. So I hope you're, you're enjoying it. if you're drinking Dungy, you're actually drinking... What do you to say? Yeah. Yingling from Philadelphia, I mean, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's too great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, Andy, I, I have a, obviously a ton of questions I want to ask you. And we're obviously going to be bringing out Sam Esmail and Jay Ferguson and Kim Dickens in a few minutes. But um, let's start with this. Okay. I hate to do, go TED Talk on you, but if. Then can I stand up? <laughs> I would have to have the mic like this. Yeah. Go on TED Talk. If, I, if you could go back to the person who made that pilot. Now that you've gotten in, through in this September entire... September of 2018. Right. Yeah. And now that you're, you've gotten to this entire process and we're in January 2020, yeah. what would you tell that person that they didn't already know? I think take the idea of a meditation practice seriously. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough question to answer because uh, I like to joke and then sometimes not joke that this was the luckiest and most incredible and intense graduate school that any person can ever go through. Um, what you guys saw was the pilot. You know, we started uh, prepping it in Albuquerque in the summer of 2018, like July. We shot in September. We posted all October and November. Uh, Sam and uh, two wonderful people here tonight, Alex Sepiol and Elise Henderson, uh, absolutely uh, ruined me by announcing the pickup on the podcast. Um, that was that a... Sick. Yeah. <laughs> that was a sick burn. Um, it was such a long and complicated and such a like humbling process. And I, honestly, all of this has been. So I, I, I like to look back and think, oh, I wish I had known better what to do here. I wish I had realized, you know, um, 
what ambition on a script could actually look like financially on, a, on the page. Um, but everyone was really kind and supportive of letting me figure this out on my own pace. So I, I, I'm trying to be in the spirit of the meditation practice that I have not yet adopted, um, but I did download an app, um, trying to be compassionate towards the things I didn't know. So I, I don't know one specific thing. Sure. Um, it wasn't that great of a question. I just no, it was to, a good question. I wanted to break the ice. Um, one of the things that Annie and I have been talking about for years on the podcast is our love of crime fiction. And Briar Patch is obviously based on a novel by, I think, probably our shared number one, like AP and my, Coach's Poll. My favorite writer. Ross Thomas would be our favorite writer. Uh, I remember, I can't remember how, I think you, you obviously discovered him. Yeah, I spent um, basically 2005 to 2006 um, hunting down every single one of his 25 books, almost all of which were out of print. And I had this, it was no, really... Nobody told Andy about Amazon. Well, no, I mean, that's what was so fun about it. Like, I actually, this is, this is super, this is definitely the kind of thing you can do pre-kids. But it was really fun to, like, search used bookstores all over the country and then find one that was, like, uncovering gold. And they had all these great pulpy covers and you sort of could feel the history of them. But reading all 25 of those books and absolutely adoring them and feeling it was criminal that they weren't very well known. Um, getting Chris turned on to them, telling everyone... Uh, and even, you know, for long-time podcast listeners have probably heard me back in the Grantland days saying, someone should turn Ross Thomas books into a TV show. Yeah. Well, reader, someone did. That's the same. What's funny is we were also like, they should make a TV show out of Star Wars, and nobody listened to it. No, like that. that was a really one of our rare misses. Um, what were some of the... You, you, you basically adapted this uh, book uh, sort of as an exercise at first, right? Like, it was kind of like challenging yourself yeah, to write something that was... I, so... We love Ross Thomas books. We should do a whole podcast just about them. They're all great. Um, Briar Patch isn't even my favorite, but I sort of recognized at the time that it was maybe the most malleable. It's, his books are never straightforward. This show is also not straightforward. I want to see all the writers nodding right now. Um, but uh, in many ways, it's his most direct or less baggy because you know it, it's a pretty familiar trope. It's in the book, a man, Benjamin Dill, returns to his hometown, it's unnamed in the book, um, to uncover his sister's murder, and some stuff happens. Um, and so that always felt like that's a great classic familiar spine to do something new with and try to update it. So gender swap the lead, uh, bring it into the present day, add zoo animals, add a second car bomb to make people like the pilot, then realize you've painted yourself into a bomb corner get, and have to figure out what you're going to do next. Get Ferguson to wear the Infinity Gauntlet. Get, no, get Ferguson. <laughs> so... Um, for the pilot, because we've obviously talked a lot over the years about the mechanics of how people pace a first episode, a first season, how they tell their story. We've obviously noticed over the last, I think, four or five years that people are tending to dump a lot early on in in their seasons. Like right. they're, they're basically leaving nothing on the table and then they'll worry about what they have to worry about next season. This is obviously an anthology, I guess you could say. Or If we do another season, it would be a different story. Sure. Um, how did you decide when you're writing the pilot? You guys want to surprise me with a renewal tonight? <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. How did you decide, okay, I want to grab people's attention, but I got to kind of like keep some of my cards to myself here? Well, as I mentioned previously, car bombs. That's true. They test great. Um, uh, no, I mean, what was great about this, and it was really fun, and you mentioned this was an exercise, that's right. I mean, uh, my, my agents, uh, Dan and Peter, who are here tonight, I met with them when I moved out here uh, in 2016, and they said that they needed a new sample from me. Why don't I just take one of those books I was always talking about and just do it? And so it was the best writing experience I ever had because... Um, You're like, Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. <laughs> By John Stein. Open. <laughs> Chapter one. Um, 
how do you write a screenplay? Um, but uh, it, there, was no, there were no expectations, and so it was just incredibly fun, and I could take great liber- liberties with the characters and, and, and really just ask a lot of questions, which I think a good pilot does, and also try to make something that would be satisfying and fulfilling if I only ever got to make one of them, because at no point did I ever think I would get to make more. And again, I keep referencing our friends from the network here. You could also come up and tell me this has just all been an, a prank, and, uh, uh, and you're taking it away. So it, it, was, um, it, yeah, it was super fun and super focusing, and I wanted to just sort of introduce the town, and I wanted to introduce the idea of this character kind of cutting through it like a, like a butter knife through, I guess they cut through butter. Um, that's a cool analogy. You're doing great. Uh, uh, but, but, but anyway, I, I knew that there was a lot of exciting things to uncover, and it was really only the, the first step of it. Um, yeah. Okay. Why don't we bring Sam Esmail up here? So we're going to bring up the executive producer of Briar Patch. I, just before he comes out, I want everyone to know, we asked the AV team here if we could play a cut from that great U2 album that was put for free on all of our iPads, <laughs> which led to one of our all-time best podcasts. And I wanted to play it, but, you know... We, we weren't able to do it in time. Okay, so, so everybody hum a song from that album. No one yeah, remembers. Just all hum different U2 songs at once. The executive producer of Briar Patch, also you know him from Mr. Robot and Homecoming, Sam Esmail. No, this is fine. This is, when we do the thing, this is usually... Well, you usually sit across. Uh, yeah. Sam, you're kind of like the the Tom Hanks of the watch at this point with appearances. Is that true? That, yeah. Five like, Timers Club, baby. Yeah. I think that, you're definitely... Is that the most? It's probably the most. Our producer, Kaya McMullen, is here somewhere. Where is Kaya? Is she here? There's Kaya. So Kaya, <laughs> let me just... Can I just say this really quick? Because we, we, did, we did the watch... We did the top 10 of the decade. We did. Kaya's list was by far the best. It's the one I listened... I watched the most. And I gotta say, Unbelievable is one of my... Favorite shows. It would have probably made my list had I seen it at the time. So, Kaya, thank job, you. Kaya. Wherever you are, um, by far the best list. Easy question. Yeah. So are we? Are you? Are you guys good? What's your number ten for? <laughs> you know, Sam, you do top ten are moments. We, aren't we doing? No. What was it that you responded to when you first? When, well, actually, why don't you just tell us how did you? I, guys... I have to. Okay, so I'll tell you. Okay. So, so you know, I, I know, right? It'll be okay, Andy. So I didn't actually ask a question. This is well. I know. Okay, go ahead. No, uh, no, no. You go. He has an answer. Go. (laughs) So Andy's a you know an amazing critic, amazing writer, and I used to read him before. You somewhat judged Mister Robot a little harshly in the beginning, early, early. And you weren't. It took you a while. You warmed up, and then you started like. But I was. I was a fan. I was a huge fan. I didn't realize these guys. Sam, I didn't realize at the time that new dramas on USA should be greeted with nothing but open arms and celebration. (laughs) I now see the error of my ways. But I have to say, so as a fan, I got giddy when you asked me to go on the podcast, which at the time was the Hollywood Prospectus, right? Yeah, that was called. Yeah, you you were on remote from LA. We were in New York. New York. Yep. And and I was like. And then we did the, I think we did the top 10 that yeah, first year. The and then I was, you know, so excited. And then Andy gives me the call, right? This is not true, <laughs> but this is his version. <laughs> hey, Sam, so I have a script. It's 100% not true. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Well, you know, just in case you wanted to read it. And, you know, okay. All right, Andy, send me, 
send me the script. And um, and he just sent it to me as like a sample. And, and what, you know, in the industry, what happens is you you write a sample based on whatever you do, whatever, and and you're just trying to get people to know about you as a writer, as a television writer. So he sent it to me as a sample, and of course, I felt because you know, at the time he was still a critic. I was worried, you know, about my own show and give him. No matter what, I was going to like the script to him. You know what I mean? But then I ended up falling in love with it and i think i called you pretty quickly and i was like this is not just this we we have to make this we have to make this you did that's the legend go ahead let's hear your truth was our other executive producer who i believe is here chad chad hamilton where is it he he sent it to you he did that's true because i didn't ask you to read it (laughs) but you did call me the next day and it was incredible. It was incredibly it. exciting. Oh no! And the, the and script was incredible. The rest of it is wonderful. And, and immediately at a, a glowing review of Mr. Robot Pop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I had already hosted your after show, <laughs> and I am waiting for you to return the favor. This, oh, oh yeah, I'm there for it. I think Briar Patch after Patch. No, I'm we there. were going to do the. <laughs> I, we were going to do the the pre-show called Prior Patch. Prior. Uh, that's <laughs> that's CC Brian Henderson yeah. came well, up with that okay. show. Um, Sam, what did you respond to in the script? What was the, what was it that made I just you thought the dialogue was so fun and so lively, and there was never a detail missed. The zoo animals, just the whole kind of it, just all, every scene took you off balance. You know, one thing that you look for when when you read any script is a voice, right? And 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 that becomes a cliche after saying that and hearing that so many times. Well, what does that really mean? Well, it means the thing that you can't define. That's so unique to this piece of writing or this piece of work and andy just every scene every line of dialogue just had that i mean and it was it was exciting to read it was one of those things where it was not a chore like i thought i mean honestly i had all these you know things going on when i was going to read it and then i just found myself really having a good time i was smiling the entire time that's so nice so usually a good sign and then i i should also add that like what was amazing, uh, we, had our, we, had, we talked about it and we talked about some things. Then we had a meeting out at SML Corp at Sam's company with Sam and Chad and with uh, the aforementioned Elise, who was at UCP, and Garrett Kemble. Elise here is tonight. here. Is Elise here? Uh, I believe so. And Garrett's here. And Garrett. we all sat down. And, you know, I had spent, as many people know here, like four and a half years just, just bemoaning the lack of, like, creativity and chance taking in television and saying like you should always do the bravest choice and you should always try new ways of storytelling and i went into that meeting being like so in season two allegra meets the real big boss behind it all and maybe her cousin is murdered and she has to investigate that and i immediately became the most conservative safe tv writer imaginable because i thought that's what people from a studio would want to hear and sam in that meeting just looked at me with a look I've seen many times since and said, why would you do that? Why would anything else happen to her? That's ridiculous. Do the, do the riskier choice, which really was the most important advice I got throughout this entire process, other than maybe look into meditation. Sam, did you talk with Andy much about how the show would look? Because obviously you're a very accomplished filmmaker. Did you have much, would you like, you know, I, I did not watch I mean, one Coen Brothers movie, bro. <laughs> no, because I, first thing you said was it's supposed to be funny, right? Right, right. I did. I did want to confirm that. Yes. Um, I got to say, I did not want to uh, I, I did not want to put my own, 
you know, influence in any way visually on the show. I want, and honestly, Andy already had a specific tone and vision he was hitting. You can't write that script and not have a, 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 a specific way this is supposed to feel and look. And I mean, honestly, it's, it's to, to me, that's why when we got Anna Lily to direct the pilot, who's also a really visually impressive and exciting filmmaker, it just, it just, it, she just, I think, channeled what you, I think you you were going for. And, and I think made it more so. And I, I wanted to draw special attention to Lily. She can't be here tonight. She yeah. wishes she could be. She's finishing a film, uh, posting a film in New York. Um, you know, we met with a lot of really, lot. really talented yeah. directors. A lot of people who had all the correct influences. I mentioned Blood Simple, Coen Brothers, and things that we loved and definitely were influences. And then uh, Lily walked in with her Suicidal Tendencies t-shirt and biker shorts and was just like Oliver Stone's U-Turn, uh, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, and Tony Scott's Top Gun. And we were like, take me. Perfect. <laughs> but, but, but truly, like, we wanted to do a hot noir, and we wanted to not make the safe choice, and we wanted to work with someone who would push it. And seeing it again tonight, I'm just so grateful for the, the darkness on the edges you know, that she found. Yeah, it just occurred to me, because I do think we threw around Coen Brothers a lot, but it, that wouldn't have been right. And you know, Lily... She's even seen a Coen Brothers movie. Was, she wouldn't mind me saying this. No. It's not her trip. Tony Scott was the better reference. Yes. Or like the giraffe shot when we were setting it up, she was like running around to all the departments saying, this is Jurassic Park. This is, this is, this is fucking Jurassic Park. And we're like, okay. You know, and then we got to the, the, the tech scout. She had like 70 people crammed into the hotel in Albuquerque. We, it's a set for series, but for this uh, pilot, it was a, a real hotel um, that would weirdly not let us bring a tiger up there. Um, we asked, uh, any, and you can do a lot in Albuquerque, but, but anyway, uh, we were walking down the hallway and some people here maybe have been on that tech scout and she just said, look, it's a fallopian tube. So, you know, they got it. They got it. They nailed it. It's pure fallopian. Uh, what did you guys, so you mentioned Albuquerque and I did want to ask about what goes into building like a world that we see up there because everything from the sense of geographical space of like, there's this main street, here's the hotel, here's where the, here's where Jake's house is to the beer that you see Dungy, which is actually a reference to another character in the Ross Thomas universe. Like these little details that if you are kind of immersed in the world, you really know how fun was that to like build the like non plot parts like the so fun yeah. too fun. Like you saw the scenes in the press club and on the wall, there are newspaper clippings. I wrote all those stories and no one will ever see them. And then we got to series, you know, our wonderful writers. I know we made Eva Anderson and Haley Harris write a lot of them too. Um, details matter, you know, and I'm sure this is the same way Sam approaches everything too, I'm sure, is that like the art is in the specificity um, and the choices that you like, make. Like what was the beer called? Like just in this Dungy. Dungy. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's two beers. There's the Texan beer Dungy and there's I mean, the Mexican this is, this beer is, Luna Buena. That's what it takes to be a showrunner and, right and, there. And, I mean, honestly, he, I mean, I remember when I would go, when I went on set and you were like looking at the labels of the beer in the refrigerator that's never yeah. going to be in the shot that they were setting up, but you cared yeah, about we, we that. We couldn't have any real brands in this world. Um, everything is made up. We have our own soda brand that, that they're drinking and then you see an ad for it on our fake telenovela magazines. I mean, this is where the fun is and also a little bit where the madness is, but, uh, I, I just think that you you have to care about that stuff. You can't let any of it slip because everything is an opportunity. But it was also not a chore for you to care. You actually 
enjoyed it maybe a little too much. Probably, probably too much. <laughs> There's a lot of headlines that didn't need to be written, but were 100% written. And one of the things I'm excited about for people to see in the series is the sense of space. And we found a made-up town. Um, as I said in the book, it's probably Oklahoma City, but it's never named. Yeah. And I really wanted to create a, a city, um, San Bonifacio, Texas. And so we had to find it. And in Albuquerque, we did find it. And as the series And found on, so much more. And so much more. <laughs> like altitude sickness. Yeah. yeah. Sam, did you give Andy like one piece of advice before he went off to set, before he went off to start this adventure? Did I? I don't know if I... Don't fuck it up, Greenwald. <laughs> yeah, I probably d- definitely said, but I said, probably said that multiple times. <laughs> throughout no, then, the you, whole... then you said you're fucking it up, Greenwald. <laughs> then I'd go back to you're doing great, but please don't fuck it up yeah. again. There's a steady drumbeat. Um, I don't know. I think, honestly, I think it was probably referencing that one moment um, that Andy brought up in that meeting. But in general, I think I just, I remember the advice was just don't play it safe. Always try and go for it. Yeah, and, and 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 we try. I mean, that was in our heads in the writers' room with every episode, which tries something different and tries on a different opportunity or adventure, basically. But no, I mean, you you were Sam. Sam doesn't like to present himself as warm and cuddly, but you were very very kind. Careful. Saying, no, you were saying <laughs> you were to tell me to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, yes. But, yeah. But, that 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 is one thing that I, and I, and even this process is as now this is coming out in what a week or so and Feb six yeah. Feb, Feb six and you know I want I want you to enjoy that part of it too because this job is taxing and it's overwhelming and there's a lot of plate spinning all at the same time and you're shoot and you were doing what I did in the first season which was flying back and forth you he, this guy was like editing episodes while they were still shooting episodes and then he was also writing the last three episodes and sporadically appearing on a podcast and then yes that was most taxing <laughs> <laughs> um we want to bring some of the uh actors that we have here on stage so let's bring up jr ferguson and kim dickens from briar patch Guys, thanks so much for joining us, joining us on stage and here on The Watch. Um, both have been on The Watch before. Both have Briefly. Kim made a brief appearance. Under a gazebo on the set of the Spivey, of Spivey's Mansion. Yeah. <laughs> Not my first time. And then Jay, Jay did a, a nice long 45 to an hour long podcast with us from the Probably set. Probably a little too long. That was a little too long. Jay, let's start with you, man. Um, what was it that jumped out at you about Jake when you were reading the script? Uh his um gregariousness and and on a level that almost seemed unrealistic and um unwarranted um but i but i know guys like that you know i know i know people like that and it it was it was such an easy place for me to go to uh because of that familiarity um with those types of characters in my life and uh and and a little bit of my grandfather too i think was was in there for me when i when i first read it and and so all of those things you know you you long uh, as an actor you long for the opportunities uh, when you um when you read something that uh that just you know the the words just come out effortlessly and and that's kind of the reaction I had 
when I first uh, uh, took a swing at it. And then, but I went in with some crazy ideas and, and this guy, you know, indulged me and, you know, ended up batting down about 90% of them, but he let me keep about 10. So that was fair. And Kim, for you, uh, I know that, you know, we haven't met Eve after, in, the, in the pilot episode, but what was it that you responded to about that character? Well, I feel similar to Jay. I mean, I'm a Southerner as well. And, and I thought the dialogue was just so gorgeous. I just, I, I, I mean, I've done a few Southern things where it's by Southern people and it fits, you know, and it flows and the music of it is just perfect, you know, and, and Andy, Andy wrote like that. And it was such a fun character on the page. I only read the the second episode. I'd seen the pilot and, and I talked to Andy and I just wanted to do it. But like Jay too, I was like, I know, I know this person. And it was a little bit for me, it was a mixture of this woman in my town that ran this antique store and she just talked a big game and she talked all day long about everything. And they say, God bless you, you know, at the end. And then, but it was a mixture of her and my stepfather. So it was just, it was the kind of stuff you got to do when you were in acting class, you know, like characters they'd never, you'd never really get to play, but you could play them in acting school. Sure. It was kind of like that. It was fun. You knew the kid from Philly. Yes. Yeah. The, was a, right. The, for Southerners. I, Larry O'Connor oh, wow. over here. Yeah. I yeah. tested him too. I said, hey, is there a Southern writer in your room? And he looked at me like wide eyed and he's like, Florida? And I said, no. <laughs> the Jewish Flannery O'Connor. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, like, there's this whole year has been full of, of pinch-me moments, but obviously getting to work with actors like these two were chief among them. And, you know, we when I was, basically, everyone saw uh, Calvin Strucker, played by the wonderful and brilliant Chris Mulkey, who has been petitioning me for now over a year to have his character's twin brother arrive, team up with Allegra to investigate the deaths of their siblings, because he had a great time on the show. Obviously, had a great time with Brian Garrity, who's hiding back there somewhere tonight, too. Um, but one thing that was important to me was that the pilot, she's really in a land of wolves and she's surrounded by men. And I w- was excited in the second episode to introduce a new character who would be a different kind of foil for her. And right away I was like, the worst thing you could do to Allegra Dill is hug her. Um, there's no, no, nothing worse you could do in, in any given moment. And so the writers will attest to this. We were basically saying like, you know, Kim Dickens type. Um, and then the fact that we can, you know, can write a letter and send a script and get the real deal uh, is just, it's still, it's still amazing. I wanted to ask what it was like to work with Rosario, because obviously she sets the tone, obviously, in the show, but both of your characters have to do a lot of interaction with her and a lot of reacting to her. What was it, what was it like? What do you think she brought to her performance that was so special? Well, she was dialed in, excuse me, she was dialed in constantly. Um, you know, the eyes don't lie, and the eyes are always um, a great way to tell if, if you've got somebody opposite you that is there with you, you know, in that moment. And there was never, never a question uh, f- for any of the stuff that we did together. Uh, I mean, almost, almost to a point where it was intimidating, <laughs> you know, so it kept me on my toes. Yeah, she's a great leader. I mean, she was so grounded and so strong in everything she did. And and she's surrounded by these, like, wild, eccentric characters that are, like, flying around the room. And, and she just holds her ground and just, you go toe-to-toe with her. She's fantastic. And she's such a, just, like, the warmest, most loving person you could have as the lead. 
what I tell me about the casting of Rosario and what that did to the writing. Cause I uh, think, I don't think people understand. Like I remember talking to you about yeah. this story and the, there is like a distinct, like BCAD from when Rosario became the lead. Oh yeah. To the point where like, I can't imagine anything about the character or the show without her. Um, I mean, Sam can speak to this too. Like we, we, in the original script, there was almost no description of anyone one way or another physically. Cause I just was really excited and I didn't have anyone in mind. I just hoped that we could find people who could play these larger-than-life characters. And I think that when we both heard the, the idea of Rosario, I think we were both really excited um, because we were looking for someone. And it was tricky. For all these parts, it was tricky. But to find someone who could basically play what I was calling an iceberg character, who in this first episode is keeping everything bottled up and under the surface, but it has to be someone who you want to Did you come up with that? Despite that. Iceberg character? I mean, I, James Cameron came oh. up with it first, <laughs> but we did, you know, creative casting. Um, so, uh, but also, isn't this a, this was a part when, when Rosario's name came up, it was like, why the fuck hasn't she ever played this character? Yeah. I mean, it's not to reference another great podcast on the Ringer Network here, but if you guys listen to the rewatchables, uh, for some reason, Chris Ryan did not bring up Briar Patch to Quentin Tarantino when they went on and on about how Rosario needs that role, that yeah. character that's just gonna fit her like a glove. And I kept wait. I was listening. Chris, a- Andy has fucking brought- say Briar Patch. To <laughs> Andy Quentin hasn't brought Tarantino. this up. Yet, so thank you. Yeah, did not happen because I thought Sam was gonna be dragging me. But this is, <laughs> this is not exactly. We don't have to litigate. No, please let's. I'm, no, but seriously. Quentin, here, come up here. Yes, Quentin. Um, seriously, that was when when I was listening to that conversation. That that was what I think I felt when we first when Rosario's name came up. It was like, God, why hasn't she done this? Is like she's born to do this. Yeah, and she and as a fan of hers, it's like I want her. And you just want it, you just want to look at her and watch her th- go through this world and play all the humanity of it. And it was just the most incredible experience to watch. Like the scene where she breaks down in the hospital. We did you know seven or eight takes of it, and she just every take and delivers on this emotion because she was so dialed into it. Um, it, it, She's also just a badass. Yeah. I mean, it's a badass and she does it really well and it's effortless and it's, it's not over the top or cheesy or forced. It's just in her. And yeah. And and I, and I don't want this to sound too much like a love fest, but it absolutely is and was a love fest for me. And these three actors, Rosario and and Kim and Jay, um, everyone at the top of the call sheet, basically, set a tone that was so exceptional and so professional and so warm and so collaborative and so fun. Um, you know, Rosario and I went to the Toronto Film Festival together and, you know, there's all this travel snafu and she was also home visiting her dad during that period. The next day when we got back, uh, she, I don't want to, I won't spoil anything, but she and Jay are in the desert uh, for a long time. Um, I don't know what your call time was, but they're just sitting there laughing you know, and setting a good tone. And I, God knows what you're feeling on the inside, but you made everyone in the crew feel good about it. And so it allowed us to all really enjoy the, the experience. The laughs were always real, man. Yeah. yeah, it was a great time for us. Phony. It was really fun. Phony. I wanted to ask you two guys, especially, because one of the things that Andy and I talk about a lot on the pod is working within genre and then subverting that genre a little bit and, and constantly surprising people. And I it's really cool watching the show because you can tell how much fun you guys are having with it but at the same time like you can tell that there's something else coming with each of your characters that there's a lot of 
layers to each of these characters. They're not just types in a noir in a noir show or a noir story. Are, are you fans of this kind of stuff outside of acting in it? Was it was it sort of a trip to be in something like this? I'd I'd never done this genre, so yeah. As a fan of it, like I like Quentin Tarantino movies and film noir stuff, but I'm not super schooled on that. So I, I didn't quite know how. I mean, I saw the pilot, so for me, it was. I thought it was like so incredibly well executed and such an entertaining piece. And I, I thought, yeah, I want to be a part of that. You know, it was fun for me. I'm, I, like I said to Andy, I was at, yeah, I signed on. I was like, oh, it's just a one season thing. It's not a big commitment. Cause it's a big deal when you sign on. It's like you sign your life away for a while. Yeah. And, and so I thought, oh yeah, this is great. We signed on for one season. It'll be fun. It's beautiful writing, a fun piece. And then by the end, I just wanted it to do more years. Wanted to, I wanted to stay with it, you know? And the thing you guys have to look out for is Kim is obviously amazing in two and in three and in four and in five. But I think six was the script we were working on when we officially got word that you were cast. And that's when I started writing you two-page speeches in every, yeah. in every episode. I've never spoken so much in my life than I did in this show. Look out. And she nails it every time, too, let me tell you. Um, we're unlike, gonna... unlike me, who when I would get those pages, I'd run to Andy and 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 plead with him on how we yes. could figure out how to make the page a quarter page. <laughs> uh, in a second, we're going to open up the floor for questions, and we've got some folks out here, I think, who have microphones, so if you, if you have a question, I think they'll come and, come and find you pretty easily. Um, Andy, I was curious, how many times have you seen the pilot now? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, hundreds. I mean, it's, it, it, it's funny. I mean, we were... Uh, 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 Gina Hirsch, our amazing editor, is here, and we were we were sitting with this for hours and hours and weeks and weeks, getting it ready to potentially be picked up, um, and then we tweaked it a little bit uh, before TIFF, um, and then just recently we were working on this pilot still on uh, Friday, like a few days ago, because uh, the tiger at the end is a real tiger, um, and we did not have a real tiger when we initially had the pilot. Um, because, as the aforementioned uh, hotel cowards wouldn't let us <laughs> put a tiger there, so we had we actually did get a tiger to Albuquerque and shot it. So, it's even the tiger nice. share representation, or is it kind of like more of a? Did you? None of you guys were there for the tiger day. Well, but I saw the sign that was on the outside of the studio on the door to enter the studio. Do not enter for actual risk of death. Yeah. And I remember a, being asked, would you like to come down and see the tiger? <laughs> and I said, hell no. Yes, I, I, I went. I saw it. It was and, gorgeous. And, and speaking of, of... Tiger have a name? Uh, there were two tigers, uh, Sheikah and Nala. Um, L.A. talent. You know, you can't get tigers <laughs> like that in Albuquerque. And um, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of the aforementioned... Um, <laughs> Uh, ti film Titanic, I did feel a kind of like, I'm the captain, so I have to be there, even though these guys can attest from my behavior moments before coming on stage. Not exactly the like, you know, cool. calm, cool, confident, <laughs> brave leadership type. And so I was sitting there petrified, like doing the thing where I'm standing with the group, but I'm really like standing behind the group. As they bring the tiger in, they were telling us very gently, like, the tiger does not like sudden movements, so don't make any no problem. The tiger does not like loud sounds. Don't make any copy that. And they were like, if something happens with the tiger, I was like, I have a follow-up. <laughs> they said, uh, do not run away from the group because the tiger will find you. 
<laughs> so I was like, this is going great. And then they said, also, one other note, the tiger has its own playlist that it likes to listen to to be calm. And I was like, I'm the same way. <laughs> so was they, it like Beach House? What was it? Well, so the first piece they played, I don't remember it. Maybe someone here remembers it. It was it was like a lovely, calm thing. And then the next thing that came on was a little bit Slayer. stranger. No, it was it was like they, they played something a little more like modern Rocky, like Imagine Dragons or something. I was like, okay, it's the Tigers a little. And then uh, and then it was Take Me Out. Well, then because then oh right, Eva was there. And then the last moment, the song switches. And we hear the, the, the famous, inimitable opening bass notes of Enter Sandman. <laughs> yeah, the tiger just likes to huge, vibe out. Huge Yankees fan, that tiger. Um, Amazing. We, we lived. We lived. Um, okay, so let's open it up to questions. Uh, any folks out there have any questions? Oh, bef- before we oh, open wait, up yeah, to questions, great. we actually have something else to share with you guys. Um, you know, we've... It's been phenomenal working with our partners at the network and studios on this stuff. And um, one of the things that we're excited to do is we are going to be offering uh, a recap podcast for fans of the show to catch up on what's going on on the show. Um, Because this is Briar Patch, we wanted to do it in a creative and interesting way. And so there's a character on the show that you haven't met yet. You'll meet in episode three, who's our local news anchor, Ginger Galanti. Uh, who is Ron Burgundy-esque, I think, in her willingness to get the story or just say all of the words for the story. And um, so the, the, the premise of the podcast is that a year after the events of the show, Ginger is deciding, is trying to make a name for herself by breaking into this hot podcasting space with a true crime podcast called Zootown. Um, and uh, our supervising producer, Brian Brown, is writing amazing scripts for the show. Sarah Minich, the great actress, is performing it. And so we wanted to take a moment and play you the trailer for Zootown, the first episode of which will be available on all podcast providers after the second episode airs. Do you know about this? No. (laughs) That's good, right? I was given Ginger the shout-outs, the unscripted shout-outs. Yes, and so, for example, you'll hear it in this. So... Uh, Ginger uh, asked a lot of tough questions of Chief Raytech, and Kim, <laughs> Kim always like called on Ginger first, yeah. and then always called on Bobby. There was no Bobby. I just made made up Bobby. <laughs> go, Bobby, go ahead. I said, go ahead, Bobby, and then nobody said anything. And I was like, Bobby, I can't hear you. <laughs> so as you'll hear, Bobby is a character in the podcast. <laughs> so let's do we have the do we have the visual for it and everything? I think we can we can throw to it. Okay, yeah, so, so Zootown is a thing. It was the summer of the zoo bombing. All over San Bonifacio, Texas, people had stories. Otters in the community pool. Anubian Ibex scoring the dumpster behind burgers and burgers. And so no one could blame Felicity Dill if she was a bit on edge that morning. But Felicity knew this place, how could she not? Much like your humble narrator, Felicity was born in San Bonifacio, had spent most of her life here. When she did leave, first for stints at boarding schools, later for college in Austin, Felicity always came back. In fact, even after everyone she knew and loved left this little dusty town behind, Felicity made a life here. She joined the police force, rose quickly to detective, She put down roots, investing in property, a cute little apartment building just on the edge of Packingtown, a rental property. It was Felicity's 28th birthday. The temperature on the Mo Fixins barbecue sign across the street read 99 degrees. 
Who knows what questions were running through Felicity's head as she made that fateful walk from her apartment to her patrol car? What adventures does my future hold? Will the cake at my work have those sparkling candles? What exactly is a Nubian Ibex? Whatever the questions, there was one thing Felicity was not prepared for. How was anyone to know how far that explosion would reach? That Felicity's remains would scatter as far as our nation's capital? That this was just the beginning of a bloody saga? A tale of family and friendship, politics and power? That before it was all over, it would claim many more lives, both in the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. From Ginger Pop Media and KQUT Channel 8, this is Zootown. A story about a little town in Texas and the big giant car bomb that blew it all to pieces. I'm Ginger Galanti, and I hope you'll join me each episode as I put those pieces back together. Coming soon to, uh, wherever it is you get podcasts. Bobby, we should figure that out. This season on Zootown. I am in the zoo. I repeat, I am in the zoo. Sir, do you have anything to say for yourself? And then we add this, and that should do it. Ta-da! Wait, did we just build a bomb? For more information about Zootown, visit briarpatch.usanetwork.com or search for Zootown wherever you get your podcasts. It all comes back to podcasts in the end. It's the source, man. That was some some really good Sarah Koenig there. Hi, I'm Sarah Koenig. Uh... Anyway, uh, let's, uh, let's do some questions from the room. And if you guys have any questions for Andy, Jay, Sam, or Kim. Anyone? Right over here? Down front? Yeah. We got coming for you. Hold on just a sec. That way? There we go. You got to hold it. Oh, we're coming out. You got to hold it. Okay. My question's for Andy. Great. Um, you, you know, you talked about, well, we would like to get picked up for a second season. Um, since it's an anthology series, you know, how do you see that? Because we have like different examples. We have American Horror Story where they use the same actors. The Sinner, they have a reoccurring character. Or we have Fargo where they use, you know, totally different story, totally different set of actors. So how did you foresee that? Had you outlined that or, you know? These are great questions. <laughs> questions I have the answers to. And I would love to give you a chance to know about them. But I don't think I can tonight. But we want, I mean, I, I, I think one important thing to remember is that what makes a Briar Patch story a Briar Patch story is the tone. Um, and I hope the tone's something that people here got a little bit of tonight. And I think it's something we really found more as we went along the way in the season. Um, you know, we, we want to tell uh, gripping, noir, fun, hot, weird, surreal stories um, where... You get Baby Yoda in there, though. Which I, I've been told. <laughs> I've been told. Um, and, yeah, so it, it would be different, but a little bit the same. <laughs> Next, and again, if you guys want to surprise me with a renewal, now would be the time. <laughs> Next question. Right down here. Hey, uh, the first one's for Andy. Um, you mentioned that Chris had notes on the original pilot, and I was wondering if they were uh, add more smoking scenes, because as a young impressionable person, yeah, 
Um, uh, shout out to the hot take. Um, what notes yeah, did you? They looked really cool as a young person. I do have, I, I actually didn't. I was just like masterpiece, uh, put it right in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I did have, one thing that you guys probably don't know is, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Rosario's smoking move is Greenwald. And he used to do that, like when we were in college, you would like p- hold a cigarette and you would take like a fake drag off of it yeah. for fun. Not because you had some like deep love of tobacco products. But like you were just, it was like a nervous gesture, right? No, I, I think there were a couple times when I would actually like decide that I would be a cooler person if I like bought Dunhills and knew how to smoke one. Yeah. So then I would occasionally fumble through like one awkward puff uh, and then um, pretend that I lost the pack. <laughs> so yeah, so th- any character not smoking is a tribute to me. Yeah. <laughs> and was there a second part of your question or just that? There we go. Um. You mentioned that this started off as like a passion project of you, you know, trying to adapt uh, one of your favorite novels. Um, when you started out as a critic, did you always have an eye on narrative writing or was this something that you like fell into after years of criticism? Oh, um, no, this is something that I, it was weird. Like I, I, when I was in New York still and doing different kinds of criticism and, and, and writing books, uh, I had the opportunity to write a script for a Josh Schwartz um, produced web series and I loved it so much. And then he got a chance to write a second episode that had, like, the penultimate episode of the series he did called Rockville CA. That um, was for the WB.com. And uh, that episode was the pen- penultimate episode. And it had been broken, like a story would be in a writer's room. And I had to take those pieces and write the script. And I liked that even more. So that's something I wanted to pursue at that time. And I it got an agent and didn't move here. And so I wasn't doing it right. But that's kind of what I wanted to do. And then when, um, thanks to Chris and Chuck Klosterman, uh, they got me on the radar of Bill for Grantland. And then when Grantland started, I just put all the other stuff away um, because I just felt very church and state about it, despite what Sam thinks. And uh, didn't pursue it at all until uh, in 2015 when my contract was up, I wanted to give it another shot. Next question. Got something in the back? Yeah, um, obviously novels and TV are consumed in wildly different ways. So what was one of the more challenging things you had when trying to take a source like a fiction novel and turn it into an entire series of TV? Um, well, one thing is that it was it's dated. I mean, the book's from 1984. Um, and, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, like the idea of a white man returning to his hometown to like settle scores is something we've all seen before and we're all very familiar with. So it really wasn't a challenge in that regard so much as it was an opportunity, you know, to, to tell a different kind of story. And when I started adapting it, I was doing it very like one-to-one the first few pages of the novel and I paused and I was like why is she so unemotional and I was like I gotta investigate my own biases here um why am I feeling that way what's going on and um I was writing it during the backdrop of a really cool presidential election we had um fingers crossed we get another cool one and um honestly that was what helped me understand the character better because this was someone who couldn't show any emotion, be happy or sad or angry because of uh, it would be a sign of, of weakness. So that helped me get into it and also allowed me to take lines that I know a bunch of you gasped at uh, that are directly verbatim from the book, like when Laughter says, how come he treats you like a white man? And when he says it to a white man, Benjamin Dill, it's one thing. When he says it to a woman of color, it's something else. Um, so it, that was exciting and kind of an opportunity. The other thing is the book is relatively straightforward and short, and so we added a lot of characters, changed a lot of stuff, added the animals, and hopefully took it to a different direction. Because I think the opportunity of a 10-part series is you can do the noir cool things and 
when you meet uh, Jake, for example, like he's just, he's on one. I mean, he's fully at, in his glory. And then over 10 episodes, you can kind of crack people's armor and see what actually is beating underneath. Next question. Got some right in the middle here. Uh, hello, uh, this question is also for Andy. Um, I'm always fascinated with, uh, especially with someone that's, it's their first time creating a show. Uh, you want to think that your imagination is the limit as far as what you're writing, but you also have a budget. So did that barrier ever cross your mind as you were writing? And was there anything after you'd presented it that you had to cut? Um, as my writers who are all here and so wonderful that they are can attest, it did not cross our mind. <laughs> we uh, really went for it in the scripts. And it turns out sometimes you may have to cut some corners and strip some things out. And then that process was really learning one of, if you pull one thread, you know, what else falls. Um, but I will- Can you also tell people about the glory of night shooting, which you did? I love night shooting. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I'm just a night owl. I love to be up all night. I love to work, you know? So I think you guys can attest that I was pretty cool as a cucumber on those nights, right? Like really present. JJ. <laughs> Are you talking about the night that you disappeared? <laughs> Do you, like, I fully Irish goodbye, Jay. <laughs> there was a, a lot of lightning delays. You know, looked around at one point and I said, Where, has anybody seen Andy? And he was gone. Because the brilliant thing was we had this lightning delay, so we were all hanging out with our director, Colin Buxy, playing games, and we were all laughing. And so I made sure I got a lot of FaceTime with Jay during the game. <laughs> Because he, he knows that's the most important time to give me FaceTime is during so gameplay. So I, I, I ghosted. But, but no, but honestly, the, the truth is, and I can't believe it, we didn't really cut anything of note. I mean, we, we were incredibly well supported by our studios. And, you know, we had live giraffes. We had live tiger. You know, we got uh, the things that we wanted most to tell the story we got. And I'm pretty excited that you're going to get to see it all on the screen. Do you like one or two more? Yeah, up front. Hi. Um, for Sam and Kim and Jay, um, was there anything that surprised you about working with Andy? It's still kind of for me. This is just he too wasn't easy there for me. the night shoots. <laughs> Good. Really needed him. That surprised you? <laughs> Did it? Uh, just what, uh, I mean, what an incredible leader he was. I really think that... Um, it stinks from the head down, and it was the most amazing journey I've had. I mean, we've been in the business for a while, and we all agree there was it was pretty fun on a daily basis. It was it was beautiful. It was fun. Everybody gave their best there, the, and it was just a pleasant experience. And that's kind of rare when you're being a bunch of creatives are together. Will you tell them about our our airline fun together? Because Kim and I would often see each other on, like, the Friday night flight. Because especially if, like, Jay or Brian Garrity were shooting Friday, I knew we could kind of, like, sneak out. <laughs> we got out, out of there. Um, and, and, and yeah, there. we were about to board the last flight out to get home. And uh, we get we get on, and the stewardess decides to tell us how it's going to be a lot of turbulence. And Christine Woods was there, too, who's here tonight on the flight with us. There was going to be a lot of turbulence. And, that, in fact, coming in, about seven people had... Can I quote Puke. her? She said, yeah. just so you know, we just flew from L.A. and we had eight pukers. <laughs> and so and the doors were closed. Like, you couldn't run off at this point. And, and this is the moment where I'm like, I'm nominally, like, kind of the boss. I got to set a good example. And this is my worst nightmare. Right behind me, ordering gin and tonics. And just, just necking Xanax when you guys weren't looking. <laughs> um, 
and then the flight got, well, then we, we took off and it actually wasn't so bad. And then I glanced through the seats and I noticed that she was reading the next script that she hadn't read before. So that was much more stressful because <laughs> I was watching her flip through the seventh episode. Jay, uh, would you compare Andy more to a Nick Foles or a Carson Wentz? Like, was it more pocket poise, or was he more of, like, a toolsy guy? Or just a world champion. <laughs> oh, you're really teeing it up for me here. Uh, well, I wouldn't uh, compare... I wouldn't say he's a Carson Wentz, because he lands on his feet. Um, but... And stays upright. Uh, wow. So, I'm going to go with Foles, you know? I'm gonna go with Foles, and and I really feel like you were kind of teeing me up to bust his balls a little bit on with the other question, and I'd I'd love to take a swing at that too, um, <laughs> but I'm not gonna. Oh. And, and no, no, and I, I just I will uh, I will co-sign what Kim said. It was shocking uh, how seasoned Andy seemed to be, even though I know deep down he was shaking with terrifying fear because we talked about it on a daily basis, because I was feeling the same thing, quite frankly. But nice. uh, it, you would have never known that it was his first time at the plate. I mean, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. Let's do one more. we got one right over here. Do we have time for a quick twofer? Oh, of course, man. Oh, okay. Nothing like so, a twofer. Yeah. First one for Andy. So with, you know, Sam Lindelof, you know, showrunners of The Expanse, Engaging directly with the online community. Are you, as a former critic, is that something that you're prepared to do, or is it going to be blind or going to log on, man? Like, am I going to live tweet the no, show? Like, you know, Reddit, like... pop in, you know, r slash television, r slash Briar Patch. Oh, right. oh, oh, like on, like, do they do that? Oh, they do. you do that? Reddit? Yeah. Yes. You get in there? <laughs> Fuck yeah. You yeah. do? Of course. Sam is like the physical manifestation of Reddit. Yeah, but I didn't know, but like, wait, wait, wait. Why are you talking? I, I you know, don't you, know me. Have you seen Mr. Robot? Yeah. <laughs> I know you read it. I didn't know you went in there and you were like, "What's up, fam? <laughs> Big Sam here." All the time. Do you really? Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm shocked that you don't know this about me. You gotta get on the boards, man. Seriously. I There's incredible stuff happening in there. N- no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I really, really, really am excited for the show to live on its own, kind of. Um, but we'll see how long I last. You not go. Arty this is the wrong itself. answer. Yeah. So, tell me the answer. This is. Give me answer, some of that vaunted advice. The answer is: Are do you even have you ever been on Reddit ever? Um, one time there was a thread making fun of Chris, um. and I went on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just show me that thread. But at the same time, create an account. It was started by Big Sam S. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got to do it. You got to read it. Okay, you got to do it. That's that's a that's an SML Corp mandate. Well, what was the other part of the two? Second part of your pot. Will, I go, will I go on four chan? No, no, or eight chan? No. Uh, so Chris and Andy, we know their answer, but kind of to end things off for the rest of the team on the stage, uh, cruise control, yay or nay? <laughs> oh, do you guys do you guys use cruise control at all? Like when you're driving? Fuck yeah, man! As often as I can. <laughs> Negative. You do not. No. I do. I, I, because I do have the Tesla, I do have the thing that parallel parks. That's not cruise that's not, control. That's, that's, that, that, that's just letting a robot park. You have to understand. So for yeah. people who aren't keeping what up with it. What is cruise control? We, okay. So we've opened up. 
a fisher in Red Bro, and Blue America serious? on our podcast. No, really I've never. Know? I thought cruise control. I was literally hiding right car, now. You, Big you, Texas you push back the here. Button and the and the I've, I've going seen it the on the speed. thing, but I've I've pushed the button. It doesn't do anything. You're not doing it right. Have you gone on Reddit slash driving? Slash. But let me just say this parallel parking thing. That's <laughs> that's the thing. It's a revelation. How could you cruise control in Los Angeles? I don't understand. No, no, not, not so much within the city anywhere. limits. But anytime I'm I'm on a trip and I'm uh, when we were in Albuquerque when we were shooting yeah. and I'd be driving to our locations, cruise control. But what? All okay, day. so get, what is walk me through? <laughs> so. You're driving on the highway. You're driving along, right? Right. And go and ahead. And you get to that speed limit that you're comfortable with. This is this is one of your and best performances ever, by the way. You push the button that, uh-huh. get, that sets your speed okay, limit. Okay, I've done you take uh, your, So far, I've done this. Okay, you take your foot here, off the pedal. Oh, I don't do that. And you get to just kind of do this. But I get, look and how you tall still steer. I am. Well, whatever. So you put it over here or whatever you're going to do. And then what happens if you have to stop the car suddenly and, you and you're sitting here like the Lord Fauntleroy? Yeah, you just, you know, you know, you could do this. But And you let go of the steering wheel? Or you still yeah, yeah you steer. still hold the steering wheel. Yeah. It's not automated driving. It just locks your... This is this, this is why our podcast risky. is going out. Also, this is, technology was invented 30 years ago. Wait, also, so the whole point of this is so you don't have to put your foot on the gas? That's correct. You have an you can put it right next it to the right gas at that pedal? sweet speed limit. So, let's say you're going through a spot, you know, and you don't want to get busted by the cops and that difference between like 79 and 80 is the difference between you getting a ticket or not. You just set set that bad boy at 79 and you're good. 79? Where are you driving 79 yeah, I don't know. to avoid Where? the police? Tell us more. Depends on what the speed limit is. <laughs> this is reminding me that you found out on the last day of shooting at Bane's Mansion, which was Jake's home, <laughs> you realized that there was a faster way to get there. So every single day, Jay lived in this house, essentially, for the four months of production. And what did you realize? That you had been going the around day. the city every day? Cruise controlling. I was going and, the... I was apparently... Going it was because I was enjoying the cruise control too much. I would not have been able to do cruise control had I gone that other route. How, but I would have been there about 45 minutes. But your knee was so fresh. Because <laughs> you didn't have to keep it locked. Uh, all right, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, Thank you guys so much for coming out. I think um, if you guys would allow me one indulgence, like, oh yeah, this is really incredible to share the stage with these people who mean so much to me and also to share this room and this experience. Um, so many people who worked on the show are here tonight and this is their premiere. And believe me, this show is as much theirs as it is mine. And so I really want to call, uh, call out to them, call the attention to them. Do you guys want to come up? Is that super weird? No, let's, let's make them just come up. Stand, stand up. At least stand, stand up. So stand. every person from the Briar Patch writers room is where here are tonight. they? Um, you guys gotta come. You, you guys, guys gotta come stand, up. Stand up. We guys. gotta get Eva. We gotta get Brian. We gotta there get Aisha. Are. We there gotta get Reina. We gotta get Wei Ning. We gotta get Jay. We gotta get Paloma. Everybody up here. Come on up. We have to get. We can't, we can't spoil his nickname, but we gotta get Brian Garrity, who you saw. As baby legs. Come on, baby legs. Let's even go. Seen all of it. He has to Where come up here. Brian's here somewhere. Garrity. Brian Garrity here. Brian Calder, Brian, Brian yeah. Calder, Brian Garrity coming up. Yeah. Look at Tim Brian Sharp, Garrity. who bared his ass on his first day of work for the show and only gets better from there, playing Harold Snow is here. I hope who, Tim who will come up. Allegra Edwards, who is there from day one as Cindy, arrived, on for, arrived for one episode, ended up staying for nine. 
Christine Woods, who you will meet in episode three, is here tonight. Oh, Christine will come up. Uh, our production designer, Richard Bloom, who's a genius, who flew yeah. here from San Francisco to work on it. Risa Garcia, our costumes head, is here tonight. Arkasha Stevenson, who directed episode nine, and did a beautiful job. I can't wait for you guys to see it. Um, anybody else who I'm forgetting who's here, there's Eldo who joined us on the show, please come up. Uh, Michael from Costumes is here too, I think. Right there in the front, come on up. Um, like, I, I cannot stress this enough that the reason I really wanted to do this was because sitting at home in a room writing reviews is fulfilling on some level, but also extremely lonely. And the goal is always to work with people who are so much better at me at all these amazing tasks and make every day look like a magic trick. I forgot the editors, Gina Hirsch and Joe Leonard. Yeah. Jesus. Woo. I'm so sorry. Wait. I didn't Hamilton. remember until I you said... You gotta bring Hamilton up in, Until I said magic trick. Chad Hamilton, come up here. And Andy Campagna. Andy Campagna. I know you're out there. there with us in Albuquerque. Andy Campagna, another Philly native. Esmail Corp, come up here. Yes. Um, he yeah, just... The goal is to work with brilliant people, and I couldn't have been more fortunate to do it. So this night is your night, and thank you to all of you. And again, I'd love to do it again. So if this is the appropriate moment, USA, like, <laughs> we're cool. This is good. Now, just pause for a second. No, I'm not. Oh, oh I'm hearing okay. this. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, what a treat. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Kim. Thank, thank you, you, guys. Thank you. February 6th. Please tune in. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Nine more of these. <laughs>